Good morning. Welcome to church. Let's open in prayer. God, as we once again gather together in this way, as we look into your word, as we today seek to understand what you are calling us to in our fasting, what you are calling us to when you speak of the new wine you are giving us for new wineskins, the ways in which your life and death and resurrection, Jesus, change everything for us, reorient us, recreate us, help us to understand that new creation that you have turned us into, help us to understand the ways in which we are a body together that is living out your call for us, and how fasting can be a piece of living out that call. In your name, amen. So, there is an important day this week, uh, and I'm not talking about uh, Valentine's Day, although, happy Valentine's Day, I guess. I'm, I'm not a huge Valentine's Day uh, fan. I'm a big fan of romance and marriage and love and all those things, but, but Valentine's Day has always felt a little bit like a... Uh, this is not part of the sermon, by the way. Valentine's Day has always felt a little bit like a, it's a greeting card and chocolate and flower sales made holiday that they've created this thing in order to sell more greeting cards and chocolates and flowers and those sorts of things. That's it. Did buy my wife some flowers and we are going out to a restaurant uh, tonight for the first time in what feels like six or seven years. Uh, so apparently, although I am not a big Valentine's Day fan, we here at the Penner household are very big Valentine's Day fans, and so you can do the math on that one. But um, I'm going to talk about an important day today that is in the Christian calendar, um, a day that is in this sort of yearly cycle that we as Christians have. Certainly other denominations, other groups, uh, I think about the Orthodox Christian traditions, do a much better, much more concrete job of kind of marking the year through with the significant days, the significant holy days in a year. Uh, but this is one of them coming up. Ash Wednesday is going to be this coming Wednesday. And Ash Wednesday is kind of a, a signpost in the ground on the road to Easter saying Easter this way in 40 days. You're 40 days away from Easter. And, and it is, of course, a time when we begin to observe what is known as Lent. It's a traditional time of fasting in the lives of Christians. And I've talked about Lent before and some of my history with Lent and where Lent comes from in Scripture. And so I'm not going to dig too much into that uh, today. I'll just say that it's modeled after Jesus's 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, and also that it isn't something that is specifically talked about in Scripture as a practice for us. It's something that was developed by the early church as a way to prepare ourselves for Easter to sort of uh, mold ourselves or shape ourselves around who Jesus is in preparation for that ultimate celebration in the Christian calendar, which is Easter. Um, but I thought that it would be a good excuse or a good reason to maybe talk a little bit about fasting. Uh, and for some of you, fasting is going to be something that you're very familiar with. It's something that you've incorporated into your Christian walks over time. It's something that you're comfortable with and that you've used. Uh, for some of you, you sort of understand the concept of fasting. You, you know about it. It's not necessarily intimidating to you, but also you haven't really ever found a reason 
to actually do it. You haven't ever gone, okay, now I'm going to sit down and fast. But you're aware of sort of what fasting is. And then there's probably some of you for whom fasting is a bit of an alien concept or something that you're not totally comfortable with or familiar with. Maybe for some of you, you're thinking about fasting in a bit more of a, a, a mystical or sort of small s spiritual way. Fasting certainly shows up in many other traditions than just Christianity. Just about every major world religion has some form of fasting built into its practices. So possibly it's something that feels a little bit, I don't know, superstitious or it feels it's, it's confusing at least. You don't totally understand it. Um, but while the Bible does not talk about Lent, it does talk about fasting. Uh, the value and the power and the importance of fasting. Mostly what we see in scripture is we see examples of people fasting. There's not a ton of teaching on it, but it's clear that it can be a valuable part of our spiritual formation uh, and a piece of the puzzle, the spiritual disciplines puzzle to becoming who God has called us to be. Um, and so, yeah, what I wanted to do was take a little bit of time to look at what fasting is and how it potentially could fit into these sort of deeply formed lives that we are looking at. We just came out of this deeply formed life series in January. So, so how could something like fasting contribute to that sort of a life and what's its place in our lives? Uh, and in a general sense, when I'm talking about spiritual practices, uh, I like to think of it like this. Think of an older um, an older married couple where you value their relationship, you admire them. Maybe they've been married for 30 or 40 or 50 years and you see them and you go, it's an aspirational thing. That is who I want to be. That's who I hope that my wife and I can be. They just seem like they're in love and they understand each other. Um, and, and there's this beautiful thing that you witness. Uh, if you would sit down with them and kind of get under the hood of their relationship and process a little bit, I think it would pretty quickly become clear. In, in most of those relationships that there are, uh, whether they've been very, very intentionally put there, or whether they've just developed naturally over time, there are systems and habits and routines and practices that are there in order to help that relationship stay strong. It's not just sort of puppy dog love the whole way through, but those people have developed tools in their relationship in order to help it weather the tougher times. And the same thing is true for us as Christians when we look at uh, Christians that we admire. There are people, I think, I imagine many of you could sit there and, and quickly name a couple of people that you think of when you think of people who really love Jesus, who are mature and wise Christians, who are people that seem to just exude uh, effortless love and grace and compassion and respect and, and who clearly have centered their lives around Jesus. They care deeply about God in that relationship. And there too, if you were to ask them about their lives, whether it was something that sort of intuitively happened for them or whether it was something they had to be very, very sort of uh, diligent about, they will have rhythms and practices and systems in place. They will be people who will find themselves in the word, looking at the Bible. They will be people who find themselves uh, spending regular time in prayer. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to find that they would be people who spend time fasting. It is one of those pieces of the puzzle that can help us have that healthy relationship and thrive and grow. It's one of those choices or rhythms or habits that we can develop. And so, yeah, when we think about spiritual practices in general, and we think about fasting, it's also perhaps 
one of the most misunderstood of those things. I think we intuitively get prayer. We understand the value of reading scripture. We understand the value of meeting together corporately as a church. These sorts of things are, are natural and intuitive. Not all of us feel the same way maybe about fasting. And it's generally probably one of the more misunderstood spiritual practices uh, out there. John Calvin. John Calvin would have been one of the Protestant reformers. He would have been uh, one of those who sort of formed... Uh, was a big part of forming what the church became when it left Catholicism and sort of became its own thing, the church that we are now a part of. He had this to say about fasting. He said, let us say something about fasting. Because many, for want of knowing its usefulness, undervalue its necessity, and some reject it as almost superfluous. While on the other hand, where the use of it is not well understood, it easily degenerates into superstition. So Calvin's basically saying that Christians run the risk of falling into two different camps in terms of their beliefs on fasting, and both of these are incorrect. So camp one is, well, you know, I've got access to the Holy Spirit, Jesus has saved me, I'm set free, therefore there's no need to fast. It's not important, it's not significant, I don't see any value in it. John Calvin says, no, that's a dangerous place to be. It's not a good place to be. But there's also camp number two, which is that fasting is great because when we fast, it allows us to control God in some mystical, spiritual way. It puts us on another higher level where we have this sort of supernatural power that we've been given, where we're at a different status than the people around us. It's this kind of magic wand that we can wave when we want something. And that's also not correct. Both of these are missing the point of fasting. And so to get a sense of what God is calling us to fasting, uh, to with fasting, I wanted to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 19. And we'll dig into that a little bit today uh, to get at this idea of fasting. This is what it says. Chapter 9, verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, him being Jesus, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into the new wineskins, and both are preserved. So, those are Jesus' words on fasting. We see here uh, John show up. John's, or sorry, rather than John, John the Baptist's uh, disciples come to Jesus, and they're concerned, and they're asking, how is it that we and the Pharisees, and to be clear, John's disciples and the Pharisees will have disagreed on a great many things, so how is it that John's, John the Baptist's disciples and these Pharisees both agree that fasting is important and John the Baptist has recognized Jesus as this new Messiah and, and we would expect you, Jesus, and your disciples to be taking God's rules, excuse me, to be taking your own rules seriously. We would think that this would matter to you, fasting, and yet you don't. So what's with that? Um, John lived in the wilderness, right? Eating locusts. He practiced a life of radical fasting, of radical poverty. And he's looking at Jesus' party with sinners and something feels off to him here. He's missing something. John the Baptist who baptized Jesus is 
kind of scratching his head behind bars and going, I'm hearing about what this Jesus is doing and it's, and it doesn't line up for me with what I thought I was going to see. Uh, this kind of culminates in a couple of chapters. In Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist sends his disciples again and they ask Jesus point blank, are you the one who was to come or should we be looking for someone else? Did, did we misunderstand something? Are we getting it wrong here? We don't understand what's going on. Uh, but Jesus replies here in this situation. He goes, first of all, you don't fast in the middle of a wedding celebration. The bridegroom is here. Weddings in Jesus' time were multiple days, sometimes multiple week affairs. There was partying and celebration. And, and most importantly, uh, lots and lots and lots of food and drink and feasting. And one of the go-to analogies of Old Testament writers and prophets was to frame the relationship of God and his people as a marriage. That's often how it got talked about. God as the groom, Israel as the bride. And, and when Israel would cheat on God with other idols and with other religions and with other priorities, it's portrayed uh, often by prophets as marital unfaithfulness. Idolatry is adultery, according to the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus is saying, I'm the groom. I'm right here. God is with you. This is a wedding. My presence is a wedding feast. Now Jesus says, I won't always be here. The bridegroom will be taken away and I'm not always going to be here in person. But once I'm gone, it's going to be different. You're going to have a new way to fast. And then he makes these two sort of cryptic statements, statements that are ripe for misinformation or misinterpretation. No one sews a path, a, a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. The garment will tear and worse than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. The skins are going to burst. Rather, you put new wine into new wineskins. And these passages, yeah, have been misused a lot. Maybe they typically get pulled out if people are trying to change something in the church, right? This is, someone's trying to introduce modern praise and worship music to a church that sings hymns and has an organ player and they go, we've got new wine here and you're trying to use old wineskins. And and it becomes a sort of passage to justify these sorts of changes. But of course, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Uh, and like so many bad takes on scripture, it's important to understand what question is Jesus answering here? What's he responding to? He's talking about fasting. You, John's disciples, you, the Pharisees, you think about fasting in one way. But after the wedding, there is an entirely new way to think about how we fast. Fasting doesn't go away, but the way that we do it and why we do it changes. I've got some new wine for you. In the Old Testament, fasting had multiple purposes. You could fast to consecrate yourself, to make yourself clean. You could fast to grieve. You could fast as a form of uh, repentance or trying to receive forgiveness. You could fast in order to call God to intervene in a situation because you want God to show up in some specific way. And Jesus says to John's disciples, I'm here. We don't fast like that anymore because I've come. I'm bringing new wine and we shouldn't be putting this into old wineskins. Here's what's new. It's not about making ourselves good enough anymore. It's not about cleansing ourselves. It's not about preparing ourselves. When we have God with us, when we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, when we have accepted the gift of Christ Jesus, when we understand the gospel, that message, then we know that we don't have to do anything. We don't have to modify our behavior. We don't have to put on a show. We don't have to be good enough or, or, or change enough or be fast enough or fast enough 
to in order to be acceptable to God or in order to force God to intervene or to get moving. If we're trying to do these things, the wineskin's going to burst. It's not designed to hold that kind of pressure because God already has intervened. We already have been transformed. We already have been forgiven for all things, past, present, and future. So this then is why we fast. We fast because we've tasted the kingdom and nothing else satisfies. Nothing else is good anymore. It's a recognition of the lordship of God in our lives and what's really important to us and what really rules us. I grew up going to the Olive Garden. What's not to love about the Olive Garden, right? Endless breadsticks, soup, um, that, that Parmesan cheese uh, spinner thing. I, I loved the Olive Garden as a child. But as I got older, and as I started to have the opportunity to eat at other restaurants, local restaurants with, you know, chefs that actually set menus and with cooks that knew how to do more than throw a plastic bag of frozen Alfredo sauce into a microwave, then suddenly the Olive Garden didn't seem so great anymore. It wasn't the pinnacle of Italian cuisine anymore. Suddenly paying $18 for a lukewarm plate of Michelina's frozen pasta didn't seem so appealing. Apologies to those of you who love Olive Garden. I, this has been a fierce debate amongst friends of mine uh, for many years already, but I don't step foot very easily in Olive Garden anymore. There are just better options out there. There's better things. There are more real things to eat than Olive Garden. I actually mostly included this analogy because I knew it would frustrate Mike, who's been on the other side of this uh, debate for some time, and uh, he can't say anything in response because I'm sitting here talking. I'm not going to check the comments in the next couple of minutes. And so let me be absolutely clear. Olive Garden, Michael, Olive Garden is a poor, sad, limp excuse for Italian food. You can get so much better for the same or less price in other places. I've tasted something more, and I know now that there is a better way. There's a greater treasure. Does that, Maybe I've lost some of you. Maybe I've created an ugly pro or anti-Olive Garden divide or schism here at uh, Pleasant Valley. So I'll try, I'll try to get back on solid ground here. Tied together with a quote from uh, John Piper. First John Calvin, then John the Baptist. Now another John who is both a Calvinist and a Baptist, actually. Uh, these guys, apparently, they know they're fasting. It's a good quote. This is what John has to say. We have tasted the powers of the age to come, and our fasting is not because we are hungry for something we have not experienced, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying, we must have all that it is possible to have. The newness of our fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by his spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. So, Let's dig into that a little bit. What does this new way of fasting accomplish? I've got three points here. First, uh, it gives us access to God's power in a special way. Now, there's lots that I don't totally understand, that I don't get. And I always want to caution, especially when it comes to creating a recipe, sort of a do this, this, and this, and now you're going to somehow unlock some additional access or additional power from God. But it is clear in Scripture and from Jesus himself 
that fasting has the potential to connect us with God in a deeper way. Uh, for example, in Matthew 17 or Mark 9, it's the same story told uh, by the two authors. These disciples, the disciples are trying to cast out demons, something they've done successfully many times before, but here they are having trouble. They can't do it. And Jesus shows up and says, ah, this kind can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. So fasting has the power to unleash or un unlock God in our lives and the lives of those around us in a unique way. I don't totally understand that, but Jesus says it. And so then I will gladly repeat it here in my sermon and suggest that it's something that we can continue to explore together as we move forward, continue to ask good questions about. But I'll also suggest that fasting has the power to provide um, breakthroughs in our Christian life. Now, breakthrough, thats that can be a loaded word. Uh, again, I'm a little bit skeptical of people who get too focused on breakthroughs, just waiting for a breakthrough, praying for a breakthrough. Sometimes that sort of thinking can bring with it a, um, a laziness or a shallowness. It comes at the expense sometimes of regular, boring, good old-fashioned hard work and spiritual formation. Um, but I do believe that there is a natural rhythm to life where even if our effort, our work is consistent and measured, our progress can sort of flash forward at key moments. For example, anyone who's ever been on a diet trying to lose some weight, you're going to know this well. You'll lose and you'll lose and you'll lose. And then all of a sudden it'll stall. It'll just stop. And you'll keep whatever you're doing, counting your calories or exercising or cutting carbs or, or whatever your process is, but nothing changes. And then all of a sudden, if you stick with it after a week or two or three You'll experience uh, what I've heard some people call a whoosh. You'll experience, you'll, 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 you'll drop a, a big amount of weight in a day or two. And then suddenly you're right back on track. And in fact, if you mapped out that weight loss over time, it would look pretty consistent. But there are these moments where it sort of drops. Uh, or for those of you raising kids, when we had our first kid, I remember Erin having a conversation. She got a book actually uh, from one of the other moms in church. I think it was Brooke about... These wonder weeks, the idea of wonder weeks. So someone has mapped out the first year or 18 months of development in children week by week and predicted that at you know, week 12, they unlock uh, some ability. And then week 18, they unlock some other ability, object permanence or whatever. And then at week 26, it's, you know, the relationship between objects, things that are far away and close by. And, and each of these phases tends to have a few days of irritability, poor sleep, these sorts of things. Your, your kid kind of loses it. And as far as you can tell, it's for no reason. And then one day they wake up and it's like they've unlocked something. There's this new awareness in them, this new understanding that didn't even seem to be there 24 hours ago. They sort of level up. And it was uncanny when we had this book and we watched our kids, we could predict, okay, week 12 is coming up. They're probably going to be grumpy and boom, they get grumpy for two or three days. And then afterwards they'd have this new skill unlocked. It was unbelievable. But the learning is always happening. It's just that there are these breakthrough moments that sort of launch you up a level. And so I don't believe that fasting has sort of magical power to make up for a lack of deep-rooted discipleship. But I absolutely believe, and I see evidence in my own life and in Scripture, that fasting has the potential to shake us out of our rhythms and allow us to grow and change and connect with God, to become aware and to sort of move to that next level. All this to say that spiritual fasting can be an important part of the key that unlocks that breakthrough, that step to the next level. It doesn't replace hard, simple, everyday work, spiritual development. 
It just complements it. And at key moments, it allows God, I think, and the Holy Spirit to work in us in intentional ways. So that's one. Number two, fasting shows us ourselves. It's like a diagnostic machine, like an MRI or a CAT scan or something like that. The, um, the number one drug for comfort is not alcohol, it's not marijuana, it's food. Uh, food is the most common addictive substance that we use to tamp down our feelings and our anxieties and our frustrations. And for so many of us, there is a script running and we don't even realize it when we get overwhelmed or when we get anxious or when we get angry or when we get sad. Food shuts that up for a little bit, quiets it down. Food makes us stop thinking about what's wrong in our lives for a little bit. And then, of course, it's more than just food that does that for us. All of us have things that we reach for when things aren't as they should be, when we need a distraction. Could be the TV remote, could be a bottle, could be a phone, could be a book, a, a dumbbell, a video game, could be our work, our careers, could be a slice of cake, could be a cigarette. Some of these things are objectively unhealthy for us. Many of them on their own are good, are better than good, are God-given gifts, but they are also distractions. They allow us to avoid having to deal with internal issues, how we're really feeling. We just finished going through this deeply formed life series. And one of the concepts for me that's really stuck is this concept of an iceberg, right? This, this sense in which we have 10% of our lives kind of above the surface, but then this deep 90% and that much of our lives is spent structured in such a way that we don't have to think about or engage with that 90% below the surface. And what fasting does is it intentionally removes the source of cheap, easy comfort. The power of fasting, or one of the powers of fasting, is that we willfully and voluntarily say, I'm getting rid of my armor. I'm getting rid of this thing that I use to distract myself. And as a result, I'm submitting myself to some diagnostics. I'm allowing some of these issues, some of these feelings to come into the light. Fasting isn't about going on a diet. It's not about getting rid of bad habits. It's about taking a period of time, a specific period of time. Fasting isn't fasting if it doesn't have an end date. It's taking a very specific season and saying, I'm not going to reach for that slice of pizza. I'm not going to reach for that phone. In fact, what's going to happen is every time my stomach grumbles, every time I pat my pocket because I feel that phantom vibration, every time I wish that I was at the gym, I'm going to allow that to reorient myself to what I truly should be focusing on, to the better thing, the greater thing, the higher king, and focus instead on that. And that brings me to our last point here. Point one was that fasting gives us access to God's power. Point two is that fasting shows us our true selves. And point three is this, fasting puts God in his proper place in our lives. David is uh, the king of, I've heard it called, I think Matt Chandler referred to it as contented discontentment. This sort of place of being filled with joy what we have and yet desperately wanting more. Thank you God for what you've given me. I need more of it. Uh, Psalm 42, 1 to 2, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Psalm 63, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. 
I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. It's this, there's a song, I love this song by Pat Barrett. If I could have gotten away with putting it in the YouTube stream or the Facebook stream and been certain that I wouldn't have got a copyright strike, I would have thrown it in right now. Um, what I'm going to do instead is put a link to it at the uh, at the end of this uh, service. I'll put it here in the comments and throw it in the Facebook group as well. Uh, incredible song that just sort of speaks perfectly about some of these things. I'll just read you some of the lyrics and then I encourage you to, yeah, on your own time after this, go and listen to this song. All the money that the world could hold, mountains made of solid gold, riches that could buy my dreams, you are better than all these things. The prettiest face to turn their eyes, beauty that could hypnotize, the open doors that looks may bring, you are better than all these things. Your love is better than life. You are the well that won't run dry. I have tasted and I have seen. Oh, you are better than all of these things. Fasting. At its core, the new wine of fasting that we have been given, the new cloth that we have to wear is this. Jesus, you have saved us. We don't need to do anything to be good enough. You have sanctified us. You have forgiven us. You have brought us close. You hold us. We are blessed. We have food. We have recreation. We have things in our lives that give us deep and good enjoyment. But all of this pales in comparison to you, to your glory, to your kingdom. You have given us so much, God, but we want more. We want more of you. So we put aside everything else because you're better. Jesus. Life uh, in the upside down kingdom teaches us that so much of what God calls us to, of the better that God calls us to, is the opposite of the way that the world thinks about things. Jesus models for us leadership through humility. He models for us victory through the giving up of everything. And when we look at fasting, what Jesus models for us, what he speaks about, what he teaches us is that true abundance comes through abstinence. True abundance comes from abstaining from, comes from stepping away from what we think that we need to remind ourselves of what we really need. Paul reminds us of this in Philippians. This is starting in chapter 3, verse 7. He says, but whatever were gains to me now, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I like this part. Not that I have already obtained all of this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of for me. It's a beautiful reminder at the end. Not that we've got this. We're not there yet. We haven't achieved our goal, but we're pressing on. And we're finding ways to remind ourselves and reorient ourselves 
and refocus ourselves on what our true goal is. And fasting can be such an important and valuable part of reminding ourselves uh, of these things. So this is what I want to do to close the service. I want to ask you a question. I'll give you an opportunity to uh, respond in the chat, but I also want you to feel free to think about this privately, personally. I want you to feel free to talk about this uh, in your family groups if you're watching as a part of a group. Lent is kicking off on Wednesday. And whether or not you want to participate, I'll again leave that in your court, whether you feel like now is the right season for it. But even if you don't think or feel or feel called to fasting right now in this moment, I want you to ask the question, what good thing might God be calling you to put down intentionally for a season in order to remind yourself that he is better? What good thing might God be calling you to put down intentionally for a season in order to remind yourself that he is better? I'll give you some time to think. Then we'll close in prayer.